Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved, which of course is a lie. But we got to remember the gospel is rolling. It's new. It's being discovered. It's being hammered out. People are trying to interpret this is what this really is. This is what God is going to do here, or this is what God is not going to do. And so these men came down and they said, hey, look, we get the Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit. We understand, because Paul had just returned from this trip where he had seen this. God had poured out his Holy Spirit on the Gentiles. God's moving among the Gentiles who are coming to faith, and they're receiving the Holy Spirit, but this is problematic for the religious Jewish disciples, and they can't understand how the God of Israel would grant to the Gentiles eternal life through faith alone. It's crazy. Because in times past, Gentiles, if they wanted to enter into the kingdom of God, they thought they had to become Jewish. They had to undergo circumcision and the whole process. So they're like, you know, hey, wait a minute, a Gentile needs to become Jewish so he can become a Christian. And that's, of course, it's not right. But they thought, hey, you have to be circumcised in order to enter into God's covenant with Abraham and later Moses. And that's true. If you wanted to be part of the Mosaic covenant, the part of the law, you had to undergo circumcision. The problem is this is the new covenant, the new covenant in Jesus. It doesn't make the old covenant wrong. It supersedes it. Verse 2, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So Paul and Barnabas are like, yeah, you guys are wrong. That is not how this is working. This is by grace. And they're like, no, you're wrong, Paul. And so they got in this big argument. They said, look, go down to Jerusalem, talk to the apostles and the elders, and let's hammer out this question. So Paul and Barnabas, they go to Jerusalem with the question of the new covenant. Do they have to become Jewish? Now, the new covenant, it created an entirely different people group, the church, where both Jew and Gentile could peacefully exist and enjoy the presence of the Lord. That was happening. They were seeing that. So now Paul and Barnabas, they're like, hey, listen, we're standing up for the people that Jesus talked about that are from another fold. They're in John chapter 10, verse 16, when Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Well, that was happening. Paul saw what the church was developing into. It was Jew and Gentile together under one shepherd, Jesus, not under the law. The Gentiles had nothing to do with the law. They didn't know any of that stuff. And to impose that, all the learning, all of the feasts, all of the statutes in the law and everything, to impose that upon a Gentile, it's like, look, I just want to know Jesus. From this would come the seeds of the first heresy to hit the church. Those who stood by their conviction that one must become Jewish to then become a Christian were known as Judaizers, and you're going to see them again. And this battle would be fought on many battlefields throughout the centuries, totally ignoring this chapter and the conclusion that the apostles declared, namely, the Gentile believers were fine on their own, they didn't need to pretend to be Jewish, they were fully accepted by Jesus as they were. Paul is going to become very annoyed at this and realize this is a serious problem because it's stumbling Gentiles. And he would write an entire letter to all the churches in that area of ancient Galatia and say, hey, let's talk about this. You don't need to become Jewish to be a believer in Jesus. And if you are Jewish and you are still abiding by those feasts and everything like that, putting your trust in those then you need to understand the new covenant. The new covenant is about a relationship with Jesus, and it doesn't come through sacrifices. It doesn't come through observing feasts and that kind of thing. It wasn't that those were bad to the Jews. The Jewish people would still do them. The Jewish believers, you'd see 
them at the temple, and you know you would see them participating in the Jewish customs. But to mandate the Gentiles to do that, was that wasn't right. Verse 3, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversions of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So they're saying, hey, all these other Gentiles, guess what? All the people that we talk to, like you, these Gentiles, man, they're all receiving Christ. They're all being filled with the Holy Spirit. And they were overjoyed. It's not just us. It's all these other people. And Paul and Barnabas are further blessed as they share the work of God with the other Gentiles and see the joy in them. So cool to see other people just joyful about the work that God's doing. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. So Paul and Barnabas, they briefed the apostles and the elders of what God was doing around the region. They also explained that the Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit. Hey, man, everything's going like it did here. Everything's cool. We're seeing the work of God all over the place. I discovered as a new believer that when you receive the Holy Spirit, your life changes. Now God's residing in you. Therefore, there's no need for religion or observances or anything else that we can do to show some kind of dedication to God. God is now in you. You're connected with Him. You're being led by God, convicted by Him as well. And when this happens, I begin to learn more about God than I ever did in church, His character, His love, His power, etc. Now I was experiencing it, not simply reading about it. And this is the way it should be. And I'm not saying that church and the Word and fellowship is no longer necessary. It is. But the primary thing is that God is in you. That's where our faith comes from. We know Him. It's not just what I believe. No, I know Him. God in us strengthens our faith. And we begin to grow, and spiritual power begins to come clear. You get it. But to these Judaizers, the magnificent indwelling of the Holy Spirit was not enough in their minds to please God. Got to have rules, man. Verse 5. But some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, these are your super conservative, educated, elite, if you will, religious Jews, they rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses, which it was. So to keep the law of Moses, you had to be circumcised. The problem is the law of Moses was the old covenant. This is the new covenant. This is different. You know, when Jeremiah prophesies about this centuries earlier, that one day God would establish a new covenant with Israel where his law would be in them. And they were aware of these scriptures in Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So he unveils a future covenant. But this covenant is going to be extended to the Gentiles. Paul writes to the believers in, in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered to us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So Paul saw the literal fulfillment of Jeremiah 31.33. It's like, man, they don't know the law, but man, these people are walking in faith. They're exercising the power of God in their lives. This is crazy. Verse 6, the apostles, the elders, were gathered together to consider this matter. Verse 7, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he's recounting this experience he had when God commissioned him to start talking to the Gentiles. So he's like, hey guys, look, you know, God used me to kick off this whole thing with the Gentiles. Verse 8, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. It's interesting that as Jews, they didn't have the Holy Spirit, but as followers of Jesus, they did. So even in the minds of the Pharisees, they never had the Holy Spirit before Jesus. So the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, which they knew of very well, now is operating in them. 
despite all their Judaism. And now the same Holy Spirit is operating within the Gentiles without Judaism. Verse 9, And he made no distinction between us and them, the Jews and the Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Ouch. Their hearts were cleansed by faith, not the sacrificial system which could not cleanse hearts. Something better is now here, and it is accessed totally by faith in Jesus. And if Gentiles have this faith, then they too can enter the family of God. This was revolutionary thinking to the Jews. They're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Run that by me again. But that's what happened. Verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, listen, brothers, we didn't get it right. The law is good, the law is holy, but it just showed us our sin. It didn't cleanse our hearts. We couldn't please God based on our observance of the law. It's by faith. And our fathers were not that good of an example in their Judaism as to be faithful men of God. So why are we saying, hey, Gentiles, you need to do what we failed at, and then we're going to judge you if you don't do it right? And he hits a nail on the head. The old covenant was weak in that it could not purify the heart. And that was evident by the continuous struggle Israel had with God. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, it says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant, and this is the law of Moses, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So it's going to be different. For they did not continue in my covenant. They broke it, like Peter was saying. Our fathers didn't even do a good job at this. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Again, that's Jeremiah 31. And the main point the writer of Hebrews is making is found in verse 13, where it says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's like a rocket. It blasts off into space. And at the appropriate time, the rocket engines, they break away. They're no longer needed. The second stage then kicks in. And that's what this is like. The first covenant had its place. It was good. It was holy. It showed God's character and man's lack of holiness. It laid out all these things, but there's a new covenant that comes that all who believe will be able to enter into based on their faith and not on all the things that they need to do. Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. You know, look, brothers, the new covenant is simple. You trust in Jesus, receive the Holy Spirit, and you're good. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. It's like, okay, yeah, Peter has spoken, his words make sense. All right, let's listen to Paul and see what he has to say. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Now, this is not the James, the brother of John. He's dead at this time after Herod killed him. This is likely James, Jesus' brother, or literally half-brother, who is the son of Mary and Joseph. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it says, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? These are all common names. So Jesus had four brothers and are not his sisters in the plural here. So he had at least two sisters and they took offense at him. 
So in that passage, it shows you that Mary and Joseph had more kids, and James was one of them. He was the oldest brother, next to Jesus, of course. He was the firstborn of Mary and Joseph. Jesus obviously being the firstborn of Mary, but Joseph wasn't Jesus' father. So this is that James. And he was not a believer in the early days, as this passage points out. But he became a believer later on, and here he's taken up a leadership role in the meeting. And he's also likely the author of the book of James in the New Testament as well. Verse 14, he said, Simeon, or Simon, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people in his name. Verse 15, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Verse 16, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. Verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things, verse 18, known from old. Gentiles called by my name. Yep, going back to the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. Go back to the scriptures and prove the point. You go back, find out that, yeah, the Gentiles were in God's plan eventually, and they're now seeing that plan come to be. Verse 19, therefore my judgment is this. Now, James was an elder, so he's given us two cents. We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Go figure. Make it easy to follow God. Leave the Gentiles alone, guys. There's no point in creating division and imposing unnecessary requirements that are going to do nothing but discourage these guys. Man, if the church would have continued in this mindset, this world would be so much better. No division. Let's keep it simple and let the Holy Spirit do the work in each person separately. Wow, what a concept. Teach them about Jesus, teach them about the Word, teach them about the Holy Spirit, and let God do His work. Verse 20, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Okay, now let's look at what's really important here, guys. What things will create barriers between our Jewish brothers and our Gentile brothers? The first thing, Christians should abstain from things polluted by idols. Jews had a very good reason for rejecting idolatry. It's in the Ten Commandments, number two, no carved images, don't bow down, don't worship them. And they ultimately were judged by God and carted off into exile for just disobeying him. And after returning, the Jews woke up and realized, yeah, God's kind of serious about this idolatry thing. Let's not do that. Stay away from idols. And there was a lot of idols in the world at that time. And these idols, they would oftentimes sacrifice animals to. And some of that meat that you saw in the marketplace would be sacrificed to these gods with a little G or these idols. That was a big business back then. If you were a pagan and you had a butcher shop, when you killed your animal, you'd sacrifice it to the gods. So a Jew, if they came up and wanted to buy some meat, they'd look at it knowing that, hey, this has been sacrificed to this god. They'd be like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'll find some somewhere else. So that was important not to have their meat sacrificed to idols because that, again, that would put a barrier between the Jew and the Gentile brothers. Second, the sexual immorality. Sexual immorality was all over the Roman Empire. There were good people that knew it was wrong, but there's a lot of people who are like we are today. The Roman Empire and their immorality is very much similar to what we are today. It's like whatever pleases you, do it. And well, we know where that goes. We can learn from history that when you start being perverted and doing all kinds of stuff, your kids suffer, you suffer, your spouse suffers, everybody suffers. But who cares? As long as we have alcohol and parties, you know, we can drown our sorrows. So we see references to all the sexual immorality imaginable in the scriptures. We see that, and Paul writes about that um, in several places. And it appears that to the Romans and the Greeks who preceded them, that this wasn't that big of a deal to them. 
And again, you'd have your righteous people who are like, yeah, that's gross. But this would cause a serious division between Jew and Gentile because, once again, the law broke down what sexual relationships were prohibited in Leviticus 18. So, for example, John the Baptist was beheaded for protesting Herod's unlawful marriage to his sister-in-law while her husband was still alive. And the Gentiles, although many understood the problems with sexual immorality, they didn't have such an elaborate list of unlawful sexual relationships. So, you know, if two believers are in there and the guy's like, yeah, this is my cousin, he'd be like, ah, man, you know, look, you can't do that. That's going to cause a a stumbling block between the Jews and the Gentiles because the Jews still had their convictions. They had the law. And again, the law was holy. It was right. It's right not to approach your close relative to uncover their nakedness. Third, animals that had been strangled. The Jews were required to kill animals in a kosher manner, which was an approved method of killing an animal and minimizing the suffering, trying to maintain some level of dignity when you do it. That was a commandment by God. Anyway, that's the way that they were used to killing animals. So an animal that was killed by strangulation or wild bees died of natural causes. You know, anything other than the prescribed way, the Jews would be like, I can't eat that, man. I mean, you know, we're good with the law being superseded, but, you know, God's law, the principles in the law like this one, they're good, and this is not right. Some of it wasn't just religious observances. It was what was right. We have to remember the law was good, and it was holy. So the dietary rules were considered holy as well. So violating them to a Jew would violate their conscience, you know, so they'd have an issue with that. That would put a barrier between them and Gentiles. And Gentiles didn't care. They're like, well, this is the way we've eaten things for years. So fourth thing was blood. And out of Genesis 9, 4, says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is the blood. So whenever you kill an animal, you have to bleed it out. That's a commandment that precedes the Old Testament covenant between God and Israel. It precedes Abraham back to the days of Noah. This is a universal command for all mankind. Those things right there will mess up unity. Everything else, we should be good. Why can't we use the same logic in church? Keep it simple. Stop creating all these stupid rules. Go back to the scriptures. Find the answers and obey them. Verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaimed him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So this is, again, James continuing. The Jews would not be ignorant of the laws of Moses. They knew these things. And the cool thing now is really everything else done in a good conscience and obedience to the Holy Spirit was in place. So if a Jew wanted to go to a Gentile's house, which was forbidden then, they could now. Just make sure the food's right and make sure you're not getting perverted. The new covenant freed up many things, allowing fellowship between believers. So no matter what the background, you could have fellowship together. You could worship the Lord together. You could do all these things together. Verse 22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Remember, Paul and Barnabas came down from Antioch to get this issue hammered out. They sent Judas called Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas would return to Antioch and brief them on a decision made by the apostles and the elders. They added two brothers, Judas, which was a common name, not the Judas that betrayed the Lord, and Silas, who would become Paul's traveling partner after Paul and Barnabas got in a fight over reinstating John Mark in their missionary journeys. Verse 23, so they sent him back with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. It's official now. They put it in writing. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from among us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, verse 25, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Verse 26, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus. So 
they vouched for Judas and Silas that they were squared away. Verse 27, We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. So it's not just Paul and Barnabas coming back with their take on things, because remember, they were making the argument. So now they're like, look, we're sending a couple other guys up here to vouch for what we did here. Verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Go figure, you got the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was in the house at this meeting, which incidentally, this meeting was called the Council at Jerusalem. So the Holy Spirit's all over it. So this was at the hand of the Holy Spirit, so we can trust it. Verse 29, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So now it's the end of the letter. Now it's official. So there should be no issues as the apostles and elders led by the Holy Spirit have discussed the matter and ruled on it. So don't bring this issue up again, okay? Sorry. We're going to continue to run this issue into the ground, and sadly remnants of the Judaizer and later the Ebionite teaching are still entrenched in some churches. The idea that you have to do these things in order to be saved or in order to be in right standing with God, and it's completely false. It's a stumbling block. It's an unnecessary step in your relationship with God, and you don't have to take it, and you don't have to submit to that kind of doctrine. You submit to the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will never contradict the Scriptures. Verse 30, So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. Verse 31, And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Yeah, it's encouraging when we keep things simple and allow God to do His work without plaguing it with all sorts of empty traditions and tweaking the Scriptures. So just let it go. Let God do His work. And they were all encouraged. Like, yeah, this is good, man. This is reasonable. Now our joy is back. Verse 32, And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Now you have a couple of additional heavy hitters in Antioch. You got Judas and Silas, prophets. That means that God is speaking through them to the people. Remember, these guys were in Jerusalem, and the persecution was still happening, so they were seasoned. They were used to it. So if they offered encouragement, it would likely have been received well. Kind of like when missionaries from countries where Christians are suffering are encouraging American Christians who seem to be in a state of lethargy and the impact that that has had on our country. And these missionaries are like, hey, we're praying for you, man. I remember a conversation years ago. I was listening to it on the radio, and this topic was being discussed about missionaries in, in other countries and you know what was happening there. And, and while I don't recall which third world country it was, what was said really impacted me. The commentator, they were discussing it, saying the believers in this persecuted country were offering up continual prayer for the youth of America. And they get it. They understand. I mean, they're being persecuted. They don't have all these smartphones. They don't have all these makeup stores on every corner. They don't have anything. They have an impoverished life, and yet these people are praying for our kids? That's from the Holy Spirit, because our kids are all screwed up because of a lack of knowledge of God, just like we are. The devil is winning in the U.S. big time, while many churches sit quietly and passionately engage in issues that really don't have anything that's eternally significant, and we're just sitting ducks. Meanwhile, in the real world, people are out there fighting for for their lives, trying to just get along and live as believers, let alone have their coffee shops. They're surviving, and their faith is real. They live off of their faith. They're scared at times. They pray God delivers them. They see the hand of God because they don't have anything else. 
and in eternity, guess who's going to be rewarded more? You know, in our culture, I fear that believers are going to be really disappointed when they don't get any rewards because they didn't really have to suffer. Or they were so watered down that they might have squeaked into heaven, but their lives were completely worthless for the kingdom of God. We don't want that. You want to be rewarded richly. You want to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And you don't get that by sitting on your butt. You study the word, you pray, you receive the Holy Spirit, say, guide me, lead me. And then he takes you on a ride. You're like, okay, buckle up. We're going. Okay, let's do it. Verse 33. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. Verse 35. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Paul and Barnabas, look, we're staying the course. God called us to do a job. We're going to do it, and we're going to do it faithfully. Verse 36, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So Paul wants to go out to these churches that they had visited, and it's so encouraging when small churches have a powerhouse believer like Paul or Barnabas visit and encourage the congregation. You know, as a new believer, I remember having these experiences in our small church where a well-known pastor would come and get up there, and you're like, whoa, this guy's a pastor of a big church, which doesn't matter. But to a new believer, it was just cool to see them encouraging us, like, hey guys, stay the course. You know, it was awesome. And it's something that we need to constantly be doing because the devil will discourage you in a microsecond. And we have to continue to encourage our brothers and sisters. Verse 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark. Uh Uh-oh, verse 38, but Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Yeah, hey, Barnabas, you know, I get it, but let's not have the same thing happen again. You know, John Mark, nice guy. You know, he's probably better off at home, you know, because if he flakes out again, I may smack him, and that wouldn't be a good witness, and I really don't need that kind of temptation. Yeah, but you know what, Paul? I think he's ready, and you know me, the son of encouragement. I've been mentoring John Mark, and I think that, you know what, this time it's going to be different. So let's take him. What do you say? Verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. So Paul says, no, he is not going, period. Barnabas says, okay, fine, I'll take him without you. See you, bro. And they split. Verse 40, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Sadly, we see even the most prominent believers having contentions, you know. What does this teach us? I think it teaches us one thing. Expect it. It's going to happen. Verse 41. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So Paul stayed his course, faithfully sharing Jesus. And sadly, Barnabas is not mentioned again in the book of Acts, and only a few times in the other New Testament writings. Paul would reconcile with John Mark, it appears, but we realize that even the best can butt heads and have a fallout. And it's sad, but God's in control. And I'm sure Barnabas and John Mark had some cool things that they did. And I think they both contributed to the kingdom of God. But nobody is above this stuff. We are all human. The Bible says there is no righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody. And Paul in Romans chapter 7 will explain his struggle with his flesh and how he does things he doesn't want to do. So even the heavy hitter Paul is like, yeah, I've had issues too. And now he has no issues. Now he's in glory with Jesus. And one day we will be in glory with Jesus. And our issues will be gone. So until then, stay in the Word, stay focused, receive the Holy Spirit if you haven't. Ask God, send your Holy Spirit. If you've already received Him, fill me again with your Holy Spirit, and you will be blessed. Thank you.